0: Before we get into the episode here, I wanted to make take a moment to talk about something that affected the Curbsiders family. One of our founding members, Dr. Tony Sideri, had a tragedy this Christmas. His four-year-old son, Leon, died suddenly of influenza. And Tony and his wife, Laura, have set up a memorial fund called the Leon Cedari Memorial Fund. They have a GoFundMe page where they're trying to raise $100,000, which they'll be donating to children who are sick around the holidays. I think this is a a great cause, and we wanted to dedicate this episode specifically because it's an, an episode focusing on infectious diseases, and we do talk about influenza on this episode uh, our hearts go out to Tony and Laura and their extended family. We will be posting the link to the GoFundMe in the show notes, but I'll give it now on air. It's gofundme.com forward slash Leon Sidari, S I D A R I, memorial fund. And you can go there and give a donation. I will also link to the Curbsiders Cafe Press store where we will be donating all proceeds for Curbsiders t-shirts to the Leon Sideri Memorial Fund. And our hearts go out to Tony and Laura and their entire family for this tragic loss. Thank you. And now on to our regularly scheduled show. entertainment
1: education and information purposes only and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any diseases or conditions. but more the views expressed on this
2: podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted for official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash like more Hospital and affiliate outreach programs if indeed there are any in fact there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you should always do your own homework and let us know when we
0: Welcome back to The Curbsiders, the internal medicine podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. Yummy. (laughs) Uh, I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my two (laughs) co-hosts.
2: Dr.
3: Paul Williams. And Dr. Shreya Trivedi.
0: And no no Dr. Stuart Brigham, Uh, the audience will be sad to hear, but it's going to be a great show. And uh, Shreya, I understand you
3: now have your own podcast. Is that right? Oh, yes. Um, it's called Core I Am. It's a new medicine podcast. And we go over quick, high yield, evidence based pearls on a medicine topic. We ask questions like, why do we do what we do in medicine? You know, so often in medicine, we're told um, just to do things like, uh, Replete electrolytes or get two blood cultures for a fever. And rarely do we have a chance to like dive in a little bit deeper as to where these things came about. Um, so it's a new podcast, Core I Am. Check it out. We'd love your feedback. Very shameless plug, guys. Sorry, yeah. guys.
0: That's, o- that's okay. Yeah. I mean, it's not. It's not like it's another internal medicine podcast or anything. But
3: uh, <laughs> no, <laughs> we right. are all
0: your a, podcast a is very unlike the curbsiders. It goes straight to the point, and it's uh, very organized, which uh, we can't say for ourselves. That so check great. it.
2: Why are we not doing that? Check it out. <laughs> this is like a much better format. Than Paul,
0: you could you could be asleep right now if uh, we were more. <laughs> 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 you playing
2: with my cats.
0: Yeah.
3: Oh, well, why don't I we do some picks
0: cool. of the week here? <laughs>
3: Sure. So, for this week I wanted to talk to you guys because we're doing an ID podcast. What is your favorite antibiotic and why?
0: I guess Paul, you can't really talk about movies here. So, Paul, what's uh, why don't you go first?
2: This I cannot believe we're having this conversation. <laughs> um, all right. A controversial hot take. I I'm going to go with clindamycin.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah what? Fun.
2: I tried to get Dr. Sachs to exonerate it as you'll hear he refused to do so. But I, I actually I really like Clinda. It's got strep coverage. It's got staff coverage. It's got MRSA coverage. Um, I think it gets a bad rap. So and also you don't have to do you don't have to worry about sort of the renal stuff with it, which is one of the concerns that you have when you're using right. trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. So I, I, I actually I, I lean on Clinda fairly heavily. So it's I'm, I'm I'm hanging my hat on it. I'm committing to Clinda and the diarrhea that it gives.
0: <laughs> and I actually I wanted to this i have a uh the opposite of an a favorite antibiotic mine would be the combination of vancomycin and piperacillin tazobactam which uh, one of, one of my ID docs, uh, during residency would always say it was very, um, uncreative to go to that combination for all hospitalized patients. But now there's actually some evidence that this might cause harm in the form of acute kidney injury. And there's been several large studies. Uh, there was a meta-analysis in one of the infectious disease journals, which I'll link to, looking at vancomycin alone or vancomycin plus various beta-lactams, something specific about vancomycin plus Plus, piperacillin, tazobactam seems to cause kidney injury. So I am trying to avoid that in my practice if I can, and that's sort of in vogue at my institution. Um, We didn't talk about it with Dr. Sachs, but uh, look out for that combination.
2: So what are you leading into for your pseudomodal coverage then?
0: I I would do something like vancomycin and cefepime, and then if I needed to add anaerobic coverage, I would do metronidazole.
3: Yeah, that's. that's I think that's why I like Zosin, because it gives me that anaerobic coverage that I don't get with Cefepime.
0: Right, right. But now with this whole acute kidney injury thing, it seems like there's actually there might be something to it. And when I first heard about it, I thought it was nothing. But and I kind of regret not asking Doctor Sachs his thoughts on that. But maybe maybe for a, a future round two with him, we can ask him.
3: Yeah, we'll do inpatient ID pearls soon.
0: Yeah. All right, Treya. What did you have an antibiotic choice for the audience?
3: Yeah, so uh, I was gonna go with ceftriaxone, just because there's very, very few antibiotics that are parenteral and once a day. Right. And then the ceftriaxone, you, you can go head to toe. Yeah, meningitis, endocarditis, pneumonia, UTIs. It's, it's a good antibiotic. Lyme, and like
0: Lyme disease, which we'll <laughs> yes, talk about. Sure. <laughs>
3: yes. Great um, and like Paul was saying, um, you don't have to worry about the renal function, which I'm always a fan of.
0: Right. So. On this episode, uh, as we've kind of been teasing here, we we had sort of this like ID, uh, just random ID topics that Treya did a wonderful job of of writing up here. And our guest is Dr. Paul E. Sachs. He is the clinical director of the Division of Infectious Diseases and the HIV program at Brigham and Women's Hospital and professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Sachs received his MD from Harvard Medical School, then did his residency in internal medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital while continuing his postdoctoral education with a fellowship in infectious diseases at Mass General Hospital. He is the editor-in-chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases, is section editor of HIV, AIDS, and Up to Date on the editorial board of NEJM Journal Watch Infectious Diseases, where he writes the HIV and ID Observations blog, which is wonderful and how he came to our attention. And he's also on the editorial advisory board of Medscape HIV-AIDS. Dr. Sachs is also on the core faculty of the International AIDS Society uh, for the USA and the New England AIDS Education and Training Center. I don't know how he's time to do any of this. In addition to his clinical and teaching work, Dr. Sachs's ongoing areas of research include clinical trials of antiretroviral therapies, cost, effect- cost effectiveness of management strategies for HIV and toxicity of antiretroviral therapy. He is presently the principal investigator at the Brigham and Women's Hospital AIDS Clinical Trials Unit and is a member of the Cost Effectiveness of Preventing AIDS Complications Research Group. Yeah, I really don't know how I have time for all (laughs) this. (laughs) And take a breath. Let alone talk to us. Uh, I know. No wonder he was a little tired. Right. Now, Shreya, since Stuart's not here, I assume you had a pun for the audience. (laughs) <laughs> oh, no, I I don't. Uh, I'm just putting you on the spot. Okay, let's just go to the show. Well, I think we could just jump right into it. With us tonight is Dr. Paul Sachs. He is the Clinical Director of Infectious Diseases at the Brigham and Women's Hospital and also Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Hi, Dr. Sachs. Hello there. Thank you so much for taking, taking time out of an already busy day to talk with us. We're, we're thrilled to have you on the show.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: We have a whole bunch of random stuff that we would like to ask you about, but I, I wanted to know first, how would you describe yourself in a one-liner?
1: Well, you know, I think when I heard that I was going to be asked this question, I thought, well, what would my daughter want me to say? And <laughs> one of the very Aww. few times that she actually said I got it right was the way that I described myself on my Twitter post. So I'm just going to read that. Okay. Is okay. that all right? Yeah. It says Harvard Brigham infectious disease doctor, writer, editor, educator, blogger, prefer baseball to football, pizza to sushi, and Beatles to stones. That is definitely
2: very accurate. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what was Not the man. last part of that?
2: Preferred Beatles, Beatles to stones. To so that's, stones. Uh, so he has the correct opinion. Well. <laughs> and, by, and by the way,
1: I feel very strongly about all of those preferences. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Rightly so. Rightly so. Okay, does anyone else want to ask Paul a question, Paul Sachs? I guess maybe we might even have to say Dr. Sachs because it's going to get me too confusing with two Pauls on this call.
2: I don't talk much. I think it'll be okay
0: okay all right Paul what is what's a uh yeah what questions do, what other questions
2: <laughs> this is going to be excellent Dr. <laughs> Sachs um, I'm gonna ask my my standard question, which i I hear that you actually like this one what is a book that you feel every physician should read
1: oh i would I would definitely recommend uh Roz Chast's book about caring for her dying parents—that was really amazing. And and it's 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 called. You know, can can we talk about something more pleasant? And it's it's <laughs> she's a, she's a New Yorker cartoonist. And maybe it's because I'm you know of a certain age, but everybody I know, of course, eventually is going to deal with their aging and uh, sadly dying um, family and and parents. And this is about the best description of that process I could imagine. It's both funny and heartbreaking and just brilliant. I can't recommend it strongly enough.
2: Yeah. it's a great recommendation. Thanks.
3: Yeah. I'm excited to try it out. Um, one of my college best friends recently passed away. And so dealing with uh, death is something I've been thinking about a lot. And so I'm curious how um, how she depicted it, especially at parents. Um Moving on, on on a on a better note. Oh yeah, um, I mean, it's
1: very it's kind. Of, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of a grim topic, but then again, you know, it is part of life. So
2: no,
3: for right, sure. but nearly
2: universal. Yeah.
3: No, absolutely. Um, but I guess on a different note, um, Doctor Sachs, what what do you do for your wellness?
1: For my wellness, I am a um, extremely uh, enthusiastic and not very good tennis player. <laughs> So that's, that's one thing. Um, and, you know, in my, uh, I like, I play as, as often as possible. And, and, and so that's, that's one thing. The second thing is that I absolutely love to cook with my wife. Uh, the third thing is um, I am very, very interested in baseball in an unbelievably geeky way. <laughs> How about those three things?
0: Is there is there fantasy baseball involved? Is that what you're getting at?
1: No, 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 not at all. No, it's more. uh, It's kind of advanced statistical analysis. Okay. See, I don't do personally. I read. I read about about how smart people do it, and I for some reason it has greatly excited me, and I can bore you endlessly with it, but I'll stop right
2: now. Well, but just so that I'm clear, one of your passions is reading about how other people do statistical analysis on baseball. <laughs> reading other people's statistical analysis
1: of that baseball, how, I see. how it kind of like it, it 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 really illustrates the complexity of the game. And if you were, tr- since I can't play baseball at that, level, <laughs> I can just imagine what it'd be like to build a team. And the way you build the team is you you use these very advanced metrics. So,
0: excellent. I wanted to ask you before we move on. Can you give us some of your favorite advice you've ever received in your career, whether it's as a learner or as a teacher?
1: So as a um, learner, uh, I would say that, that someone I think of as one of my true clinical mentors um, told me early on, I was, went, went to him and I, I had a very, very difficult case. And he was already, I thought, the world's best infectious disease doctor, and I said to him, I really am looking forward to the time when I'm like you and I really know what to do each case. And he looked at me and he said, you think I know what to do in each case? <laughs> <laughs> it was absolutely clear that, that that time never happens for the really good doctors. And then he said, you know, you're always going to be in situations of uncertainty, and it's, it's, it's really learning how to deal with the uncertainty and how to, how to, how to manage it. That, that's, that's so important. So that was, that was one piece of advice. That was a, as a, sort of as a, as a doctor. As far as, as a teacher, the very best teachers I've always thought are the ones who can engage the audience without using gimmicks. And I'm going to think about my, my – one of the very best teachers I've ever worked with is, is, is Marty Samuels, who's the chief of neurology at the Brigham. And I went to see one of his talks he gave once on dementia – to a large audience it was like an audience of maybe 500 to 1000 people this giant room and he got up to the front and he said to them i think i'm just not going to use my slides today and then proceeded to talk for 45 minutes about what it's like to evaluate someone with suspected dementia and he engaged the audience and they were hanging on every word it was just so masterful so that would that would be the kind of that would be the model of what i would i would want one if i were to do it much much better than I can do
0: it now. <laughs> yeah. All right, Paul. I guess you're going to have to get rid of that ventriloquist dummy that you use on rounds. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's all I've got. <laughs>
3: Does he really use it? <laughs>
0: no.
3: Oh. I, could, I mean, Paul is so eccentric. I could just see that happening.
0: <laughs> oh, I love it that you believe that that was something <laughs> that Dr. Williams actually does on rounds. All right, Shreya, well, we should move on. We should move on to the topic at hand. So what? where would you like to start today?
3: Okay. So today in clinic, uh, we have a very lovely 60-year-old African patient, Miss R., um, you're trying to convince her to get the flu vaccine, but uh, she tells you she saw on the news that the flu vaccine this year just wasn't very effective. And also, she's just not going to get it. She says that whenever she gets the flu vaccine, she gets the worst sickness ever. Dr. Sachs, how do you kind of approach that? Um, and maybe to break it down a little bit more, um, one of the first things let's address is kind of the effectiveness of the flu vaccine this year. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: So there were a lot of questions in that case. Um, which part do you want to take first? How do I approach the patient with that particular barrier to getting the flu vaccine? Or you want to talk about the, the efficacy of the flu, the effectiveness of the flu vaccine this year? Which one? Please. Help.
3: Uh, let's talk <laughs> about the effectiveness of the flu vaccine first, and then we'll go to your approach after.
1: Sure, sure. So, so um, here's the science part. The science part is that the flu vaccine is never 100% effective. And probably in the largest uh, study, efficacy studies, the best it's looked is about 60 to 70% effective. And that's the bad news. That's not as good as the measles vaccine. But the good news is that it, it, it does work uh, and it, it, and it also probably attenuates the severity of the illness. So it's better than nothing. And it is really our only good way of preventing the flu vaccine uh, that we can institute. And so I I strongly recommend it. I get it every year. And it's not perfect, but I do get it every year. Um, What about this year? Yeah. There's been a lot in the news this year about the H3N2 strain, the H3N2 strain which circulated in Australia. Remember, they have the flu in the summertime, we have it in the wintertime, I mean, our summertime they have the flu and, and, and they had a very bad flu season this year and they attributed it to H3N2 and that's what they found. And they then estimated the efficacy of the vaccine or the effectiveness of the vaccine in Australia, and it came out as a whopping 10% effective, which, of course, made everyone terrified that we're going to have the same lousy effectiveness this year. A couple of caveats. Uh, First is that the vaccine was more effective for other strains and not all influenza's H3N2. Uh, Second is that we had a lot of H3N2 last year, and Mm -hmm. we don't know whether our uh, flu season this year is going to be exactly like Australia's. So far it is an H3N2 season, but it hasn't really kicked into high gear yet, although it's a bit earlier. So I would not say you know the, the, the sound bite was flu vaccine only 10 percent effective, but in fact, you know globe the overall effectiveness is going to be more than that, and, and our effectiveness, just for the record, uh, was about 30 percent for H3N2 last year. So, so you know who knows what it's going to be? So I, I would say take those reports as some sensationalist news. So who knows? We'll we'll have to wait and see. Okay. Is that enough?
0: (laughs) That's good. Yeah. And I was, was I was looking, the CDC website actually has some great stuff on this too. And they, they were saying that there was a study from just this year, 2017, showing like flu vaccine, decreased mortality, decreased, uh, need for ICU admission, decreased length of stay in the ICU for people who do get it. So, you know, there are, there is some like hard endpoints that they're looking at saying that this is something people should get.
1: Um absolutely. I, I will say I do have on my you know a follow, someone who follows me on my blog who is a, a very smart physician who just doubts the whole uh the whole concept of inducing respiratory immunity using an intramuscular vaccine and uh he he tortures me, but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. I mean, he at least is uh, somebody who is advocating for a better flu vaccine, and I think we all would. I mean, we would love to have a universal flu vaccine. Fortunately, there are some smart people working on that, and also there is NIH dollars behind that. So, so I hope we'll have that one day. Okay, so that that's enough on on that.
2: <laughs> and right, but that's almost never my my barrier. I'm not sure everyone else's experience is. So, if someone has enough health literacy to know the yeah seems not that efficacious. They're still they may be dubious, but they'll get it. It's usually more for me, i I don't get the flu shot because the last time I did, I got really sick. or every time I got the flu shot, I got sick. and i I am spectacularly, good at failing to convince people, um, or, or educating and, 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 sort of changing their minds. How do you frame that conversation?
1: Yeah, we all, we all have that difficulty and, and there, there really, I think are three different major barriers for people to have. And sometimes people have all three. One is I get the flu vaccine, I get sick. Uh, two is I never get the flu. So why should get the right. vaccine. And the third one is it's not very effective. So why should I get it? So, uh, what I do is I, I listen <laughs> and then I say, um, you know what, um one thing about about the the never getting the the flu uh, i I bet you wear seatbelts when you drive a car uh, and you know maybe you've never had an accident. Well, the whole point is that maybe one year you will get the flu, and this way you'll be protected or you'll get exposed to the flu. so that's one and then as far as you know, I never get it because it makes me sick uh, i first, if they say they get the flu from it, I tell them that's impossible because it actually doesn't have any live virus in it, uh, and then I say, you know. I get it every year, and so do all of my colleagues um, isn 't that doesn't that sort of say something and then after I give that that little piece, which is all of about three to four minutes, if they still refuse, you know i I just say okay it 's your decision I really don 't think that 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 we should be twisting people 's arms to get it. We should be strongly uh, advocating for it, but this is not like you know, your patient who has uh, progressive anemia and they're in their 60s and it's iron deficiency anemia and they're refusing to get a colonoscopy where you think, boy, you know, I could save this person's life if they get diagnosed with colon cancer and it gets resected. This is, this is a moderately effective vaccine that we do recommend, but if they refuse, I, I, I just at one point say, you know, enough is enough. What? Documented, that's that.
0: <laughs> Dr uh Dr Sachs one other thing I thought you might mention was the the egg allergy issue cuz since the the flu vaccine is made with quote egg-based technology and uh has some egg proteins but I was looking uh today and, and it's it seems like unless they've had like angioedema or or just anaphylaxis it's really not it it's it's not a to to eggs then then they should still be able to get the vaccine. It's still recommended. But if they've yep. had that re- real severe reaction, then they recommend it's given in like a very like controlled setting. If they've had that anaphylaxis or a, a serious reaction to eggs, um, is that something that you're encountering as well?
1: Yeah, the egg allergy does come up periodically. And and you're absolutely right. Unless it's a very severe allergy, then, then it's okay to proceed. Um, there is an egg-free vaccine out there. Um, most... Clinics don't stock it, so you have to order it specially. Um, we'll say that the, the right now the among uh, flu vaccine uh, aficionados or flu vaccine birds, the egg, <laughs> the egg, the, the process of preparing the vaccine using the egg-based, egg based egg based process seems seems to be one of the things that makes it less antigenic. So, I mean, among the very, you know, there's the, the home run. Uh, there's the baseball analogy. The home run is the universal <laughs> universal flu vaccine, but the, the, the single might be a better a recombinant way of making the vaccine that does not reduce its antigenicity uh, through the process of using the egg-based um, way of deriving it, so.
2: And just for completion's sake, because this comes up in resident clinic all the time too, if, if someone comes in with subjective fevers or just feeling kind of crummy, what is the party line in terms of giving flu shot to someone who's sort of quote acutely ill?
1: Well, there's acutely ill and there's acutely ill. Most of the time, patients <laughs> are right, right. ambulatory; they're they're totally fine to get it, even if they have a cold or they feel unwell or they have a stomach bug. That's 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 fine. Uh, I, I would not. Necessarily, I mean, I wouldn't give the flu vaccine in the ICU to a patient critically ill. Uh, There's their their likelihood of responding to it is diminished. So, but it's okay to go ahead.
0: And I feel like this is the perfect time to bring up the man flu, which was featured in this year's uh, British Medical Journal. Uh, The BMJ always does these sort of funny year-end articles uh, around Christmas time. Uh, Were you familiar with this article, Doctor Sachs? Of
1: course, I was.
0: Yeah. So, uh, so this, this, uh, writer, I I guess it was a family med doctor that did this review and it was saying that the, that, that there might be some scientific merit to this. What do you think?
1: Uh, I think it's an outrage and I strongly oppose. it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so for listeners who aren't familiar, the man flu is uh, something my wife first made me aware of this term, uh, making fun of me for actually yesterday. I, I had the man flu. I was I was on. I could not move all day. I couldn't eat anything. I was terribly sick today. I feel fine. But uh, the man flu, so basically women have noticed that maybe men don't handle colds or the flu as well as they do. And this, this writer, who was a male family medicine physician, was, was saying that, that he looked through the literature and found that maybe estrogen boosts the immune system and testosterone, more testosterone is immunosuppressant. And then he also suggested that evolutionarily, if you're sick— Lying on the couch, not getting out of bed, and receiving assistance with activities of daily living could protect you from predators. So I thought it was very well done, and uh... I,
1: I, I thought it was I thought it was extremely funny, and I, <laughs> I I highly credit the BMJ for doing playful stuff like this. Yeah, uh, a a journal that I am affiliated with that I absolutely think is outstanding. Um. Could never have published so many.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: that will go nameless.
0: Okay, I think we know what you're talking about. Shreya, do you want to get us back on track? I'm sorry for yeah. derailing things.
3: No, 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 no. Man flu needs its place, and I, I need you. To, I, I want you to feel cared for and loved in this time of sickness. Thank you. Um, that's what. That's what I think man flu is really about. It's like men just need to feel cared for. But. Yes. Um, <laughs> just, I won't get into that. <laughs> okay. So back to Miss R. Um, so uh you you let go of the flu vaccine and she also tells you, Oh, by the way, doc, um, I'm gonna go on vacation all over Africa. She's really excited. She hasn't been back for 10 years. Um, she was born in Africa, uh, but for the most part, it's grown up in USA. Um now she asks you your opinion in terms of travel vaccine and prophylaxis. What are yeah. your thoughts?
1: So, so even though I'm not a travel medicine specialist, I am an ID specialist, and every ID specialist gets asked travel questions a lot. You know, and um, so so the the most important thing about visiting Africa is that Africa, much of Africa, is is highly endemic for malaria, and There's this term visiting friends and family, VFF, uh, where people who are living in the United States for years want to go back and visit friends and family. And they grew up there and they weren't taking malaria prophylaxis. So they think, why should I? malaria prophylaxis to go back. Well, the the fact is, as you all know, is that your immunity to malaria wanes very quickly after you leave a malaria endemic region. And so, most of the cases of malaria that we see are not in American travelers, people who are from the United States going there, uh, who are taking prophylaxis. Prophylaxis is very effective, but it's from people from uh, malaria endemic areas who are going home after years of living in the United States, and they then get caught unaware and they get malaria. So um, they should definitely, you know, the, the, the thing that clinicians should do is make yourself very well acquainted with the outstanding cdc.gov travel website, and you can plug your patient's uh, destination in there. It is very accurate, very up to date. And, you know, you can become a travel specialist yourself, you know, and, and provide good advice um, the sort of—I uh, would say that the 10-minute travel advice involves malaria prophylaxis, um, traveler's diarrhea, uh, antibiotics to take with you in case you get traveler's diarrhea, typhoid immunization, hepatitis A update. Uh, that covers most of it. And then there's there's much—there's way fancier stuff for more adventurous travel. But if you did just those things, uh, you would really kind of help people a lot.
3: No, that's awesome. Because I, I was telling you uh, in the pre-recording, you know, when I go to India, I am an awful physician myself. I'm like, oh, I was born in India. I I, I was I lived there until six years old. Like I'm, you know, I'm good. I've always been good. Um, but now that I've been reading more about the um, immunity to malaria, as you were saying, I've uh, I've become better. I've become. <laughs> you I've you grown. mean
1: there is a physician who does not. Follow the advice of guilty healthcare officials and other physicians. I I'm shocked.
3: <laughs> I love it. Thanks for making me feel better.
0: <laughs> we hired Treya I- because she's a badass. So we kind of
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, v- VFRs visiting friends and relatives. You you've got you've got you know the highest risk uh, depending on where you're going. So so. Be careful. Obviously, Sub-Saharan Africa has more malaria than India, but India's got plenty. So be careful.
3: Oh, for sure. And in med school, I took a, uh, you know, I was doing like a mission trip and I I took the risk. But looking back, I thought that was so silly. Um,
1: I I will say uh, of the vaccines I mentioned, the hepatitis A vaccine is one of our very best vaccines. Um, So people who are not hepatitis A immune who travel to developing countries or travel to the tropics in general should definitely get it. I mean, it's a really effective and very safe. Um, by contrast, the typhoid vaccines are really not 100 percent effective by a long shot. And all of us <laughs> have seen patients who've received their typhoid vaccine who develop uh, typhoid fever. So just to just to, so you know that little kind of vaccines at the, op- yeah, the opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of effectiveness.
3: Yeah, bring on the ID pearls. No, we love it. Um, all right, so Miss R goes to Africa. She comes back. She She's really adventurous. She also went hiking with her grandchildren in Vermont. Um, she thinks wow. she might have gotten a tick bite, uh, it's similar to a, a, a rash she'd gotten before, uh, and then she was diagnosed with Lyme disease at that time. So the question here is, do you just send Lyme serologies or put her on some doxy and send her her way?
1: So first, because you know all medicine is associative, I would say that, that when you say that someone has gone to Africa and then they come back and they go to Vermont in the summertime and you're bringing up tick-related illnesses, of course, most of us ID doctors are going to think of babesiosis mm-hmm. because babesiosis is an intracellular parasite like malaria and it's endemic throughout all of uh, New England and Mid Atlantic states and increasingly common. And you can't tell the difference on a, a blood smear. And so we've actually seen many patients who come back and they have exposures to both malaria endemic regions and Babesia related, Babesia endemic regions, which is one of ours right here. And you can't tell, but anyway, but you asked me about Lyme disease. So shall yeah. we shall we talk about, <laughs> shall we talk about the, in some ways, the mo, one of the most challenging infections that any of us deal with? And that's, that's Lyme. Uh, Lyme is caused by the spirocrete. Borrelia burgdorferi, as you know, it's transmitted by the, by the black-legged tick, uh, Ixodes scapularis, and, and just parenthetically, it used to be called the deer tick, but you'll mm-hmm. notice that people are using that term way less often than they used to, and I think the they shift, I'm not sure quite, quite what the shift is, one, one person has speculated it's it's the, the, the deer are very angry.
3: <laughs>
0: the smear linkers. campaign yeah. against the deer exactly. for all those years.
1: <laughs> Another uh, is that 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 biologically, uh, it's actually more accurate to call it the, the white-footed mouse tick, because it's right. really the mice predominantly that are the vectors for Lyme disease. But I think really... They call it the black of tick because that you can actually tell if you look our, under my, under a magnifying glass that it has black legs. Anyway, so there she goes, she goes off to Vermont and she has a rash that might be Lyme disease. I can tell you that if it were in an endemic uh, area, which New England is, and if it's in the this, this season, then, then the right thing to do is to treat based on your clinical impression. And so uh, an expanding rash, um, after a tick bite, or even after a possible tick bite, in an, in an adult that that is sort of erythematous and blanches, it may or may not have central clearing. Uh, that's the diagnosis of erythema migrans, and you do not need to do a blood test to to make that diagnosis. You should just treat empirically. Um, you know, I thought you were going to ask me at the beginning of this interview what's my favorite antibiotic. Uh, most <laughs> ID doctors, it is doxycycline, and in in the summertime, there are many individuals who seek. At medical care who have doxycycline deficiency of some sort, and <laughs> I
3: would say
1: that, that a person with a rash after going hiking in Vermont in the summertime has doxycycline deficiency.
3: All right. And then what else sh- um, should primary care providers know about Lyme serologies? What else are we doing wrong? Um, empower us.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, well, first, um, Lyme testing is really pretty terrible and just going to get that out there at the outset. Uh, During the acute illness with erythema migrans, it's often negative, so that's bad, so you can't use it as a confirmation of your clinical suspicion. And then second is after treatment, it it often stays positive um, for years. Uh, So you can't use it as a test of cure. So I'd say common mistakes that I see clinicians do with the Lyme test is that they do follow-up Lyme testing after making a diagnosis. And then they end up alarming their patients because they're still positive. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one one pitfall. Another is that they would order it in a very low likelihood setting. And since, you know, if you have a low likelihood, then your false positive rate is going to go way, way up. Uh, And in fact... The screening test for Lyme disease has a very high false positive rate, and, and that false po- – it then gets confirmed with a with a Western blot, but, you know, meanwhile, you've got this positive result. You've sent it – one sent it for very nonspecific reasons. You have to deal with this in some way, uh, and you can actually end up triggering sort of the almost uh, delusional qualities of Lyme disease that are very common, which is that people think they have Lyme disease when, in fact, they don't. So, um, it's a it's a very bad test. I think that one – one aspirational thing we have in diagnostic infectious diseases would be a really good antigen or PCR test for Lyme disease. They don't exist, or a really good uh, test of cure, but that doesn't exist either.
3: Maybe if there's some lab researchers out there, they're getting inspiration from you. <laughs> that would be great. You're so positive, yeah. Shreya. I, I just
0: <laughs> wanted to—I wanted to highlight something here for about the. So I was—I was reading about this. Uh, the so, if you have a tick attached to you and you find it, and you think it's been there for 36 hours or more, and you think you're in the right area, and it looks like it could be an exodes species, species, then you could give a one single dose of doxycycline. But if you've already got the rash, then you should do the full treatment course. Is that is that correct?
1: Yes, that is correct. The The preventive treatment was <clears throat> tested in a randomized clinical trial, and it's really extremely effective. Um, one thing about the, the, the time of attachment is that you know, in in, in practic- practically most people don't know how long the ticks yeah. have been attached, and so so essentially, that <laughs> the fault is when someone calls you, say, "I've had a tick attached to me," and you, you know, it's June twenty first, and it's <laughs> it's in Martha's Vineyard. You darn right, they're gonna yeah. take the preventive treatment, right. whether it's on there for thirty six hours or it's on there for twelve hours or it's on there for who knows. Uh, so, and you guys are based in California, is that right?
0: No, I wish. Uh, we're, okay. I'm in, we're Paul and I are in Philadelphia. Shreya is in New York.
1: So why are we doing this so late?
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh I don't know. People, uh, yeah, because we generally because we uh, we have to you know put the kids to bed and then then the house is quiet. That's why. Full exactly. time,
1: <laughs> <day time> <laughs> <to> <laughs> okay, so you guys are based in the Mid-Atlantic states uh, plenty of Lyme disease in yeah. in the Philadelphia and New York area plenty. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean this is one of those situations that we could have a whole separate discussion about Lyme disease. I don't want to get too derailed, but but you know, it's it's one of these d- serious diseases that has a very large uh, societal response to it that can make managing it almost as difficult as the disease itself.
0: Right. Oh, for sure. And I wanna I wanna link there's a, a two thousand seven New England Journal article on chronic Lyme disease debunking that. That diagnosis, but basically, that's patients come with these subjective symptoms: fatigue, MSK pain, concentration difficulties, short-term memory impairment, and they're they think that they have chronic Lyme disease despite really no objective evidence of chronic Lyme disease. And and I think that's what you're talking about. And people are putting them on these really long courses of antibiotics. And I, it sounds like they get pick lines for this. It it sounds like a whole mess
1: it It is a whole mess. i will I want to emphasize that there are people who have very severe cases of Lyme who have uh, quite significant residual symptoms after they're treated. I don't want to in any way diminish the suffering that those patients are having because it's quite real. Mm-hmm, right. What is debated is whether those patients with the post Lyme disease symptoms benefit from further antibiotics. And so far, the, the clinical trials really do not support giving them. And of course, there's tremendous downsides to getting long-term antibiotics. It is a, it's a real problem. And but that, I, will, I will say also that, that people with any severe infection often have post-infectious uh, residual symptoms. So, it's not, it's not unique to Lyme.
3: Oh, for sure. All right. Well, it's good you didn't get too derailed with Lyme disease because Massar comes back to clinic. Turns out, just kidding, it's not Lyme. Her <laughs> rash, her rash is now like red, hot, tender, it's screaming cellulitis. Um, you want to put her on uh cephalexin, keflex. But then she tells you, "Hey, my mom told me when I was a little kid, I'm I got aller- I was allergic to penicillin." How do you kind of approach that?
1: So the first thing to remember is that the vast majority of people with a reported history of penicillin allergy, and that's non-specific like this, actually have either outgrown it or they never were allergic at all. Um, so this kind of report um, is one can very pretty pretty safely administer uh, cephalosporin because the the cross reactivity, even for people who have severe uh, penicillin allergy, is not 100%. It's probably more like in the the single digits. Um, and second, as I mentioned already that that these histories are are really really weak now now let 's say you really do want to clear it from the chart. Um, one of the most powerful tests that the allergists have now is penicillin skin testing, and this is done sort of you know electively and it 's done when people are not acutely uh, infected with something and they can they can basically now say with a negative penicillin skin test that this patient has no greater likelihood of developing a severe penicillin allergy than the general population. And so, it is a, what you can do is then remove that penicillin allergy from the patient's chart. And it is so powerful. I almost think we should have like a celebration when we do that <laughs> each time. So, um, And then there's also the people who say they're allergic. And then when you probe, you say, what do you really, what do you mean? Well, I took this medicine and you know, I got a stomach ache or I took this medicine and I got a yeast infection. I mean, these, these are really not not allergies at all. Um, So anyway, it's, 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 it's something we deal with a lot. Uh, I have to say, uh, you know, ID doctors do unbelievably detailed histories, which is part of our OCD. Uh, And one, one of the things we do, we delve into is, is this uh, antibiotic allergy issue very, very deeply.
2: Are any of the adverse effects that you, that you assess for more worrisome or less worrisome? So you mentioned upset stomach, which is probably a little bit less compelling and probably less likely to be allergic. Are there any symptoms that, that do sort of make you raise your eyebrows or actually give you pause?
1: Sure, sure. Absolutely. There are people who get um, systemic reactions to antibiotics that are associated with eosinophilia and liver function test elevation. That's, you know, so-called DRESS syndrome. Very, very serious. There are people who get um, desquamative rashes, uh, Stevens-Johnson syndrome, toxic epidermal necrolysis. There's really no... No way you can use any of those antibiotics again. There's no test dose for those. Uh, And then there's the other, the whole fluoroquinolone issue. Um, I don't know if you want me to tackle that now. uh, Oh, hit it. Team. Yeah, let's Um, do it. Okay. Yeah. So so, (laughs) so the fluoroquinolones are miracle drugs. They're really wonderful. Um, And it was observed probably, I don't know, five to 10 years after they were approved, that there were some people who anecdotally initially said that they had this neuromuscular fatigue syndrome uh, that was separate from the tendon rupture story, separate from the other quinolone allergies that we hear about, that they basically never felt quite right again. They had a course of ciprofloxacin, levofloxacin, moxifloxacin, and then ever since then, their brain feels foggy, they they're hear buzzing in their ears, their joints ache, their tendons ache, and they feel permanently damaged from them. And initially when we heard about this, since it was pretty rare, uh, you know, there was a lot of skepticism but now enough people have come forward uh, that the FTA actually acted in 2016 and said that if you are assessing someone who is being uh, considered for treatment for bronchitis or urinary tract infections or other mild you know ambulatory outpatient infections, you shouldn't use a quinolone unless it's absolutely required unless there are no other alternatives that's a very very strong statement and uh, it has definitely influenced um, how Widely, we prescribe these drugs. I, I want to emphasize these drugs are really critical to our patients, and so it's it's not like you should never use them, but we should always think twice. Uh, you you know that they're not the first line treatment for urinary infection anymore, and this is the reason.
0: Yeah, and I think you're probably open to litigation if you're if you're just throwing them out there and not d- definitely not counseling patients, and definitely if you're using them for some of these weaker ambulatory infections, just because the the FDA warning's there. And I think oh boy. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I know. In fact, if if you want if you want to go Want to be uh, you know Google search uh, quinolone and and lawsuit oh, and God. boy, <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. mercy.
0: It's like you yeah. you know those mesothelioma commercials. You know, oh yeah, That's like
1: the... oh no no it's it's absolutely. I have actually seen specific advertisements for have you received ciprofloxacin? You know, oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: okay, I have so enough then great anxiety, so I will not be doing that. But yeah,
3: <laughs> so, in what what clinical scenarios do you, would you say PCPs should be using fluoroquinolone? in the outpatient setting.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, there are patients. You know, a lot of a lot of PCPs have patients with very complex medical problems, who have highly resistant organisms. You know, that's that's a common scenario for your sicker patients. You know, and and if you need to use a quinolone, uh, then you need to use a quinolone. I mean, there's only one oral antibiotic class that has activity mm-hmm. against *S. and that's the quinolone class. So, you know, rather than put in a pick line and. Start them on cefepime or piperacillin-tazobactam. You're going to use a quinolone in those settings, um, but uh, but it, it's it's just that we should think twice about it. Uh, another setting that I think is very safe, very uh, reasonable to use, if you have an outpatient who has a lot of medical comor- comorbidities, you know, diabetes, high, you know, hypertension, obesity, and they develop pneumonia and they're kind of borderline admission or not. I, I would say a, a respiratory fluoroquinolone is very appropriate use because they have the ideal spectrum for for outpatient. Pneumonia and in, and any community acquired pneumonia.
3: Sounds great. All right, Big, bring it back to Miss R.
1: <laughs> okay, so, she's got a lot of medical problems.
3: She, <laughs> this lady's is... a mess, Ray. You yeah. got to cut her from your panel. She, I know, <laughs> she's my most active patient. Anyways, so this cellulitis. Let's say you go to examine it and there's actually some fluctuance there indicating it could be an abscess. Uh, because of my awesome primary care background, I adequately drain it, I do a good job. Now, this question's been debated often. Do I still give her antibiotics?
1: Well, you know, the first thing is I, I'm impressed with your ambulatory procedural skills. Uh, one, one of the things that distinguishes uh, ID doctors from the rest of you guys is that, you know, we don't do procedures. <laughs> we're, we're thinking doctors. We're not, you know, people sometimes say, you know, they see us coming and they go, oh, are you IND? And it's like, no, <laughs> we are ID. Uh, That's so, so, amazing. Uh, anyway, but it is true that most uh, absences, uh, especially in patients without a lot of medical problems. They get better without any antibiotics. Uh, so this has been tested in a randomized clinical trial, looking at trimethoprim sulfa versus placebo in patients with with abscesses, and and it found, lo and behold, that the antibiotics actually were statistically significantly better, uh, and there was fewer recurrences, and there were no major side effects from the from the antibiotics. So so the 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 take home message from it was that antibiotics significantly improved outcomes in patients with uh, abscesses that were drained. However, (laughs) the the difference was not that great. And uh, some have argued that even though it was statistically significantly better, maybe it's not clinically significantly better. And maybe a reasonable intermediate approach is to not Give antibiotics for these healthy patients who have their abscesses drained, and tell them, "Look, you know, if it comes back, then uh, we'll we'll treat it. Or if you you feel like it's not cleared, then we'll treat it." So I, I I can see both sides of it, but I think that we do have an answer. The antibiotics, at least in the the absences, in this the patients who fit the characteristics of the study, that that the antibiotics did help.
0: Yeah, right. we we had a. I, I I wonder if this was from the E er literature or emergency medicine literature because we had we had a primary care uh procedure clinic at Cashlack and we were doing a lot of uh, inds and we would just bring them back within 72 hours take another look at it and make sure that it, it seemed like they were getting better and 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 if they if they looked worse at 72 hours we would hit them with antibiotics at that point
2: so yeah, it was dogma for years i mean it was always i repeated like a like a religious track that the definitive treatment was IND, the definitive treatment was IND. Yeah. So the antibiotic debate is, I feel like, a relatively recent one.
1: Yeah, but well, let's the, say so, it, oh, it, it actually turned out to be, um, there were all kinds of studies that sort of inadvertently showed us that you mostly just needed to do IND. There was this famous study from San Francisco where they, they used cephalexin as the antibiotic and they, they did that, as the MRSA epidemic was sort of accelerating, and so it ended up that most of the patients got either placebo or they got antibiotic that didn't have any activity, <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and the outcome Perfect. was the same in both arms. Now it was you know slightly underpowered, so so um, but people looked at that study and they go, well, look, you know, the people who got nothing did just as well as the people who got nothing. So well, let's just give them nothing. Um, I, I do think that the, the paper that was published in the Journal of Medicine, it was just earlier this year, does tell us that the, um, you know, the cure rate is slightly higher if you give them the antibiotics. I certainly think that patients who have abscesses on their face or in their genitals or they're really large or they're systemically ill or they're immunocompromised, they should get antibiotics, definitely. But but it is true that the otherwise healthy young person who gets IND, you know, they often don't need anything. Uh, so... Still still up for some debate.
2: So, so since we've established that Mizar is, in fact, a mess, we'll say, yeah. and now we're <laughs> going to give full ownership to Shreya, which I really, I'm really, i really enjoying this. So, Shreya goes just full out and gives her clindamycin <laughs> an, an additional to the, the IND. And the patient comes back with diarrhea three to four times a day for the past couple of days. So, where do we go from here? Is this where you would stop the antibiotic? Is this something that you would work up? Should we be... Admitting her for C. diff, what is, what is the next step for this patient with maybe antibiotic-associated diarrhea?
1: Yeah, so, so most, most diarrhea from, from antibiotics are that exact entity, antibiotic-associated diarrhea. When do you suspect C. diff? I would suspect C. diff in, in anyone who has cr- bad cramping, uh, who, who has uh, fever, fever. Um, if you do labs, they have leukocytosis. That would be very, very concerning for actual C. diff if they've had C. diff before. Because remember, this is a disease that recurs. The spores stick around a long time. You know, I very memorably had a patient. Uh, uh, I guess I'm supposed to say they were cared for at, at your institution. What is that institution of, you call Of course, it was cash <laughs> Yeah, okay. Anyway, and, and, and uh, she had about a five-year interval between C. diff and then got antibiotics five years later, and lo and behold, C. diff again. So, I mean, these these are yeah. there are people who are predisposed to getting it. Um, so, those are the cases I've suspected. But if you could, in this case, the one you just described to me, stop her antibiotics, then it may go away on its own, and it doesn't really matter if she had C. diff. C. diff that resolves spontaneously after stopping antibiotics is the best kind of C. diff because you don't need, <laughs> you don't need to treat it. Uh, and in fact, treatment further uh, upsets the microbiome, so you shouldn't treat it. So that's that's what I would do.
0: I didn't know there was a good kind of C diff. That's uh, <laughs> a nice way of looking at it.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, if you're, you, I have I have a sh- one of those shirts that has the glass half full in it, and. It is kind of the personality that I'm teased about most in my household, that I'm a
2: glass full kind of
3: person. <laughs> that's the best way to be. Wait, so, okay. R. I
2: have great news for you. You have the best kind of C. diff.
3: So. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so Dr. Sachs, what I'm taking away is if she doesn't have abdominal cramping, fever, leukocytosis, I'm okay not sending that C. diff and saying, okay, this is antibiotic associated diarrhea. That, is that- that's-
1: if that is the case. I mean, the one thing you've upped the ante a little bit by using clindamycin, which is, of course, our biggest offender or our highest risk offender for antibiotics. But I, I would say most of the time you don't need to send the this, this sample.
0: And now, did Shreya drop the it. ball by not giving probiotics?
1: Uh, I think probiotics are uh, <laughs> at most marginally effective.
0: Okay. Because,
1: okay. you know, the, the the complexity of the human microbiome there's just no way it can be uh, encapsulated in something you purchase at CVS or Dr. Yeah. Joe's or Whole Foods. You need uh, a stool
0: transplant, right? That would be- I, I mean, <laughs>
1: it's, Essentially, if, if you want to replicate the human microbiome, that is unfortunately the best way to do it these days. Yeah. So it's not to buy some pills. I mean, there are people who really strongly believe in them, but the data are pretty weak. Uh, they They may be slightly favorable, but not strongly favorable.
2: And I, I obviously picked clindamycin on purpose just to kind of complicate things. But is clinda really one of the bigger offenders? I thought my understanding was that maybe it was just in sort of the way the data was looked at and that kind of as in general antibiotics just sort of predispose you to see that. Is clindamycin more likely to do so?
1: There's a hierarchy where clindamycin and the quinolones are at the very top. And then next down are the uh, expanded spectrum, you know, beta lactams, cephalosporins, and Penicillins with beta lactamase and then then down at the bottom risk are the drugs that have like no anaerobic activity, trimethoprim sulfa. and and then there's my favorite again, doxycycline. I mean, <laughs> doxycycline is is really. Uh, is probably protective against C. diff um, because it has actually some anti-C. diff activity. Uh, and so, you really hardly ever see it with, with those. With trimethoprim itself. I think in my career, I've seen one case. Uh, and with uh, doxycycline, I've never seen a case of C. diff after.
3: I didn't know that about doxy.
1: Well,
0: think think what you've learned tonight on this podcast. <laughs> this
3: is great. <laughs> this,
0: this is, is why, why we, we do this. This, this is it. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was also just to close the loop on the C diff thing here. I did see that uh, last. I think it was in the past month. The the pills versus the the colonoscopy, the stool transplant if given by the pills versus the colonoscopy, there was a non-inferiority trial. So basically, it's looking like it's all you have to do now is take like a hundred C diff pills or whatever it is, and uh, yeah. and that so that that's great news. And I I wonder if in the future we'll be giving giving those, you know, with people on broad spectrum antibiotics, if they'll be getting that or something, I don't know, but it's,
1: it's interesting. Yeah. Or maybe right after the antibiotics. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, I think that the key is that the, um, as you mentioned that the pills were as good as colonoscopy, colonoscopy certainly is, is a, in our American healthcare system, there's a lot of push to do procedures, but if you don't have to have that procedure, boy, that would be much better.
0: Yeah,
3: for sure. Okay. Okay. So to close out our last question, Miss R chills out for a few months. She comes back to clinic. Um, you want to go and give her the shingles vaccine because she's six years old. So for our med- our med students and our residents. It's like a big, uh, big uh, board question. Six years old. Um, but when you go to give it her, she adamantly says, "Hey, hey, um, you know, I've I, I've never had the chickenpox before. You know, why do I need the shingles vaccine? What do you say to that, Doctor Sachs?"
1: So the chickenpox vaccine and the history of whether you've had chickenpox before is pretty irrelevant for someone over the age of 60. I mean, it's very, very funny. Um, When the zoster vaccine came out and there was zoster vaccine guidelines, they said that you basically could presume that anyone born before 1988 was immune. And when you do the math, you realize that, that if you're giving the Zoster vaccine to people 60 and over, that includes 100% of the people. <laughs> they were all born before 1988. I guarantee it. Uh, so, 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 so it, you know, you basically don't need to check titers. You don't need to, you can discount that history. The person who's over the age of 60 has been exposed to chickenpox, either had a mild case and it was never recognized that it or it was asymptomatic and they acquired it. So so go right ahead. Um but this brings up the whole issue of what are we doing with zoster vaccine, because as you know, the FDA approved a new zoster vaccine very recently. It's not yet available, um, but it will be available in 2018. And it's a better vaccine. I mean, it's it, instead of being a live virus vaccine that's very fragile and not very effective, uh, especially over time, this is what's known as an adjuvanted subunit vaccine, and it triggers a much stronger immunity in the people who get it. It's two shots and it's about 90 to 95 percent effective in people over the age of 60, which is much, much better than the existing zoster vaccine. So I have told all of my patients who are eligible for the shingles vaccine that they should just wait and get the new one uh, because the new one is is better. Now, there are a few downsides to the new one. It's going to be two shots, not one. Uh, It is um, going to have more, like, mild, nonspecific side effects because it is more immunogenic, Uh, and we don't have long-term safety data on it, but so far it doesn't appear to have any major side effects, and that's the vaccine I would want if I were getting immunized against uh, shingles.
3: All right, but say she, you, you're like, okay, you do shared decision making. She's like, I don't want it, and you're like, okay, maybe we can wait until 2018 when there's a better shingles vaccine. She comes back and she gets shingles, um, which is awful.
1: But she gets but it before the vaccine.
3: She gets it before the vaccine. Um, so you're right. She did. She was exposed to varicella at some point. <laughs> she just doesn't remember. Bad, bad. Um, yeah, bad timing. But then, then she goes. Well, why do you still want to give me the shingles vaccine? I just had zoster. Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: So the question is, how often does uh, herpes zoster recur? Right. That's that's mm-hmm. you're asking. Yes. 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 Okay. Yes. So so um, turns out recurrent zoster is not that common, and it's not that common right away, and that's because when people get Zoster. It stimulates their native immunity against varicella zoster virus. And so as a result, they're not going to get another outbreak soon. But sometimes it does come back. And there are people who several years later get another case. And so uh, pretty pretty likely the guidelines for shingles vaccine and the new shingles vaccine are going to include people with a history of herpes zoster. They might have some language like, you know, have to resolve for six months or something like that. It wouldn't make sense to give it right away. Uh, but, but I would say that someone with a history of herpes zoster should get the shingles vaccine. The, the issue of the timing is not yet known. Uh, I, I'm going to say that, in fact, the ACIP has not yet issued guidelines using the new shingles vaccine. When those come out, and I assume they'll come out when the vaccine becomes available, we'll have some more guidance about how to approach this particular issue. As we will about people who got the old shingles vaccine, because you know the efficacy of that vaccine really wanes substantially over time. So undoubtedly, there are going to be you know people in their seventies who got the shingles vaccine when they were sixty-five, and and they're they're very much unprotected uh, mm. at this, and are really good candidates to get reimmunized with the, the new vaccine. And and part of this is a, part of what I'm talking about is a little bit my bias as an ID doctor. Um, you guys in primary care you see all kinds of cases of shingles uh, from mild to severe. We see mostly the severe cases right. uh, and and they're really bad. I mean, if the severe cases of shingles, uh, either the acute complications or the long-term post neuralgia are really, really awful, can really destroy someone's life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen it just completely knock like a a functional 85 year old lady had the shingles in her ear, ear canal. And she was just like, for almost two months, she just couldn't do anything. And she had been fully functional and it was, I had nothing to offer. (laughs) exactly. Uh, At least that's how I felt.
1: You know, I I completely agree. That's the kind of case that I'm thinking of, you know, every so often a primary care doctor will call me and say, you know, this person, uh, you know, is, is is confused you know they have shingles and they they are they're not making sense and <laughs> they get admitted to the hospital and then they have my very mild meningoencephalitis and then they you know wow. it's, there's all kinds of kind you know secondary bacterial infections and then the postherpetic neuralgia which of course is the worst mm-hmm. and and that those those patients i really feel sorry for uh, because they were previously not chronic pain patients and now they are chronic pain right. patients and who wants right. to be a chronic right. pain patient
0: and and it sounds like there's not even good evidence that giving the antivirals or or the steroids for that matter uh have anything to do with like preventing postherpetic neuralgia it sounds like it just kind of happens if it wants to do, yeah. it, do you have thoughts yeah, the, on that
1: the data are kind of mixed i mean I, I would say if you define postherpetic neuralgia as uh presence of pain 6 months after the onset of the rash then it, it in aggregate early treatment with antivirals makes that less likely. Okay. okay? But, but it's not a huge effect <laughs> and there are people who are treated promptly who still get it. So it's not a hundred percent protective by any stretch of the imagination.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you a very random question, something from <laughs> oh, your, oh. something from your blog recently. So I think you'll be able to handle it. Uh, can you tell us your thoughts on uh, the use of salad tongs to to pick up something like a bagel at a buffet?
1: Well, you know, I got to credit my friend Joel Gallant, and he—he he kind of just—he's uh, a great writer, and he decided he would like address this issue, and he said, "I felt it was really weird. I, I went to get a bagel, and I could have picked the bagel up with my hands." <laughs> <laughs> and taking it carefully without touching an adjacent bagel, or I could use the tongs that everyone else was using. And he said, which one do you think is 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 better? You know, I mean, what if someone had used the tongs who had the drippy cold and right before me? <laughs> right. And And so he thinks that there's, you know, and I wrote about that and I queried. I I had a a, a poll, you know, what should you do? Should you use the tongs? Should you just pick it up with your hands? Or should you just, you know, who cares? The bugs are everywhere. And I think (laughs) the winner of the poll was who cares? The bugs are everywhere.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, someone already sneezed all over all the bagels anyway. So you're, you know. (laughs) Yes. All right. Uh, Shreya, did you have anything else before we let uh, Dr. Sachs go?
3: Dr. Sachs, do you have any other take-home messages that you really want us primary care physicians to take home?
1: So take-home point number one for you primary care doctors is that we ID doctors really respect what you're doing uh, and that we know that you're dealing with these incredibly diverse problems and that ID is only one part of it. Uh, and And the second thing is that since we, we love to get your questions and we learn a lot from them, but just one thing. First actually two things first say thank you after we respond to your curbside okay. and second don't use the phrase uh, can i ask you a quick question
3: <laughs> oh. because
1: that that is the question we hear most commonly and there's it has no correlation with whether the question
2: actually is quick or not yeah
0: so i, I think you got to do a full curbside or a full consult not not just the curbside if you're if you're leading with that so <laughs> from the show called the curbsiders yeah
3: <laughs>
0: well thank you so much for your time this has been really fun and uh i i could say we'd love to have you back at some point uh in 2018 to uh to to go over some more topics that you've had on your blog
1: thank you very much for for inviting me i really enjoyed chatting with you today
2: all right thanks so much dr right,
3: Doctor sachs take care
0: This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Feels weird not being interrupted by Stuart right now.
3: I know, I'm tempted. <laughs> you can <laughs> find take his place,
0: You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. You could also sign up to receive our weekly mailing list where you'll get PDF copies of our wonderfully done show notes at the curbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We're committed to to providing you (laughs) with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we want your input. So send an email to the curbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at the curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, and
3: I'm Shreya Trivedi.
2: And I remain Dr. Paul Williams.
0: And no Stewart. Good night. Pom pom. <laughs> I just had to cycle cycle my system here with this awesome Skype update, which is I am not liking.
2: <laughs> At least
3: it's counterintuitive. So <laughs> got that before. <laughs>